Okay, um, if you brought a Bible, somebody open up to Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Uh, so we could get somebody to read that for us, that'd be great. Galatians chapter 2, 20. Anyone, anyone? Um, <laughs> don't everybody jump at once. Come on. Okay, good. Thank you, Lizzie. Uh, and somebody else do Philippians uh, 121. 121. Anyone? Callie. Very good. Um, all right. Um, <clears throat> okay, why don't we just read those and we'll, we'll get cranked up there. Uh, Lizzie, why don't you start with Galatians 2.20. Okay, Philippians one twenty one. Very good. All right, look, y'all, we are finally ready to ask the question that we began this summer discussion um, with, but with a whole lot more fullness, I think. Um, we started this whole series by asking the question, who am I? How does the Bible understand me? And I tried to appeal to you on behalf of the fact that everyone is living out a story. Whether you're religious or not, you're living out some kind of narrative about your life that helps you make sense of the events of your life. Right? Uh, and that whole discussion comes under this category of being created in the image of God. All right, That we are created in the image of God. And in many ways, I think that we've seen this summer um, almost every aspect of a person's personal story come out in that discussion of being created in the image of God. We've seen, first of all, uh, uh, what we're constituted to be. We've seen what our mission in life is to be. Uh, we've talked about what the greatest problem is that we're going to deal with. We've talked about what the beautiful solution that God gives us in His grace is. Uh, and we talked a little bit last week about how to understand the world around us and the difficulties that will face us in living out that story. Tonight we come to what I think is the culmination of every human being's search for dignity. What does it mean in the most essential way for human beings to be in possession of dignity? And we're also going to find that the answer to that question is also the answer to the question of what the Bible is about. The central theme, the topic of the Bible is the same answer to the question about our identity. Uh, plain and simple, to put it simply, the Bible's about Jesus. <laughs> um, it's a safe Sunday school answer. What's the Bible about Jesus? Uh, you would be correct when you said that. But I mean that in a way in which very few people really get when I say it. Okay? Uh, look, <clears throat> let me say it this way. When you go back to the Old Testament, I would venture to say that most of you grew up listening to stories in the Old Testament. Be taught the same way in which they were taught to me. You see, when you go to the New Testament, it's kind of like, well, that's clearly about Jesus because, A, it's about Jesus in the Gospels, and then all the apostles are writing about Jesus too. So we kind of see how the New Testament is about Jesus. But you go back to the Old Testament, what we typically do with those stories is we turn them into um, stories with a moral, you know? In, in other words, we look at the life of, uh, uh, of Abraham. We say, you know, Abraham lived by faith, and so therefore you should live by faith too. Let us pray. And that's the end of the discussion, right? Uh, we look at the life of Moses and we see somebody who, you know, is a man of great uh, influence and holiness, right? Uh, we see David as a great uh, leadership example. And in other words, all these stories in the Old Testament are typically taught 
as if they are stories that are primarily about you. Here's David's life, and that story is about you and how you need to be a better leader. Here's Abraham's life, and how he was faithful, and how you need to be more faithful than you are right now. And so when you listen to stories about the Old Testament, we typically end up treating them like, you know, the Old Testament is just a great big finger kind of wagging at us that are giving us stories about how to live a more moral life. Now, there's a, a list of problems with that that are as long as my arm, but I've mentioned just a couple off the top. First of all, the stories in the Old Testament really resist that kind of interpretation. Um, <laughs> mostly because all of those characters that we go through and list um, <laughs> come with tons of stories about how they completely messed up. You ever thought about this? The Bible is fairly harsh on its heroes. <laughs> Nobody comes away unscathed. In every single story, no matter what kind of great feats they did for God, give them a couple chapters and they're going to screw it all up. <laughs> you know, uh, Abraham lies to uh, the Pharaoh in Egypt about his sister. Uh, Moses you know, hits the rock instead of speaking to the rock. Uh, David, oh, for heaven's sakes, David. You know, David uh, has an affair with a woman and that murders his, her husband, for heaven's sake. In other words, there are no heroes in the Bible that come away unscathed, right? Here's the reason for that. There are no heroes in the Bible except for one. <laughs> I want to submit to you tonight that all of those stories are pointing to the true hero. And the reason why they end up having all these bad stories told about how they failed and messed up is because they're all trying to say none of these heroes were complete. They were all pictures of a coming hero who would fulfill what they were intended to bring. In other words... Jesus is the one who stitches together every single story in the Old Testament into a unified whole. Everything from Genesis to Revelation ends up being about Him. It's all about Him. And so therefore, the only real answer to the question, who am I, right, is that we are about Jesus. It's somehow got to have something to do with Jesus. And I, and I always get this look on people's faces whenever I say that. It's like, yeah, <laughs> we came to a Bible study. Uh, we kind of know that less. Do we, though? Um, that's what I simply want to uh, toy with tonight and see if we can't come to a better answer. I want to wrestle with what Paul means when he says, um, for it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. And how he says in Philippians, for me to live is Christ. Does that, does that, have you ever read that and looked at that sentence that doesn't make sense? For me to live is Christ. Uh, what do you mean live is Christ? How can Christ be an adjective? <laughs> uh, or, is it, or is it a predicate nominative, right? Which, is, which one is it? I never understood that verse until all of a sudden I began to, to get some help uh, <laughs> seeing how the Bible fits together as a whole. This is huge, y'all. Uh, one of the biggest things that we can do. Okay, two points I want to make tonight, and then we'll have some time for questions here in just a few minutes. I want to introduce the principle, and then we're going to talk about the practice. We need to introduce the principle of what it means for Jesus to be the point of every story in the Bible. And then secondly, we need to look at how that makes a difference. How am I supposed to live in the face of that? Look, y'all, the cast of characters that we went through this summer and looked at are not stories about those characters, but they're stories about Christ. And when you look at the New Testament, you find the New Testament authors treating those Old Testament characters as if they were about Jesus. Let me give an example. Let's go through the list. Number one, Adam. The character of Adam uh, was such that we find 
that he was not, the point of the story of Adam is not who Adam was. The point is, is that Adam was the first Adam. And there was coming one day the last Adam. Romans chapter 5 says that Jesus was the true Adam. Yes, they were both the father of respective humanities. Book of Romans says that you have one of two fathers. You're either in Adam or you are in Christ. Right? They both have representative heads. The difference is, is that Adam failed his temptation when the serpent came and uh, tempted him. But Jesus passed his temptation when uh, the devil came and tempted him, if you'll remember that, right? Um, Christ is the last Adam, the head of a whole new humanity. So Jesus is the true Adam. Secondly, how about Noah? We talked about the covenant that God made with Noah, right? Well, in 1 Peter chapter one, chapter 3, we find Peter saying that the flood that Noah went through was a symbol of what Jesus was going to do in and through us in baptism. He looks back and says exactly what happened with Noah is what happened to you in your baptism. God saved you in your baptism, right? In this induction into his family, there was a, it brought about a salvation. So that what happened with Noah is not a moral of a story of whenever you see rain, build a big boat. Which is really funny how you think about those stories with a moral. They don't really work when you try to apply them. So therefore, if the clouds are coming, build a great big boat and find as many animals as you can. They don't work that way. Um, uh, by faith in Christ, we end up experiencing the same salvation that Noah experienced through the flood. Thirdly, look at Abraham. God made promises to Abraham, if you think about it, that could only be fulfilled in Christ. First of all, he promised Abraham what? That you would have many descendants. I'm going to make your name great. So that when you get to Galatians chapter 3... Paul can look and say that the fact that Jesus has come and spread his message not just to Jewish people, which is what the Jewish people thought, but to even the Gentiles, means that he is absolutely fulfilling what he said to Abraham, that eventually your family is going to encompass a great number that no one can number. Which, by the way, is exactly what you have in the book of Revelation. When John looks up and sees the hosts of heaven, and it's a number that no one can number, See the connection? Secondly, God promised Abraham that he would give him a land. He's going to give him a territory, a place. Well, what are all the promises that Jesus comes and talks about? He looks and says, I'm coming to bring the kingdom of God. I'm coming to establish a new realm. And eventually that realm will cover the whole earth as the waters cover the sea, the book of Revelation says. Um, Jesus is the fulfillment of Abraham. We only see what Abraham meant when we see Jesus. Third, fourthly, how about Moses? Moses comes to be the great lawgiver. He's the one who prepared the people to go in and to do battle into the promised land of Canaan and to take the land back, right? Well, Jesus comes in and is himself the final conqueror. Colossians 2.15 looks and says that Jesus comes and puts all of his enemies under his feet. That he comes and conquers and makes an open spectacle of the spiritual uh, forces out there. And therefore, we can fight with strength, with the expectation of winning. That's what the whole um, put on the armor of God is about in Ephesians chapter 6. Okay, lastly, look at King David, right? I mean, Jesus was the Davidic king. Why do you think, have you ever read the Christmas story? And it's got those big, long genealogies of so-and-so begat so-and-so and so-and-so begat so-and-so. And after a while, you go, you know, how did this make it like in the Bible? <laughs> Why would anything so boring and mundane be in the Bible? It's because the writers were looking and saying, this baby that came that was born in a manger is the true descendant of King David. God is keeping his promises. But David wasn't about King David. David was about one that was to come. And the one that was to come was Jesus. You're starting to get the point. Um, 
the Bible is about Jesus. And we simply cannot assume that the Bible is our stories about us primarily. They're not about you. If the, Bible's a story, if the Bible is full of stories that are, that are primarily about you, then I bet the Bible is incredibly discouraging for you. You look up at it and it's full of a bunch of examples that you're supposed to live up to and you never do. I bet you never do. But if there are stories that are primarily about Jesus and what Jesus came to do finally and in a way in which no one else could, then those stories actually give me hope because Jesus accomplished something that I can never accomplish in myself. See what I'm saying? Y'all, it is night and day to look at the Bible as if it's about you and if it's about Jesus. Okay, that's the principle, right? What is the practice there for? What does it mean to believe in, in, in these stories, to believe in Jesus to our ultimate transformation? I, I want to simply submit to you that seeing Jesus as the point of the Bible stories and therefore the point of my life is the only way in which we really change. It's the only way in which we really begin to change in a way that's effective for ourselves. How is it that knowing and believing a story about Jesus could make a difference in your life? This is where sort of the rubber meets the road, right, uh, on this one. <clears throat> How is it? Because the Bible knows something about us that we simply haven't, um, haven't figured out yet. This is my huge sort of uh, 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 proposition here. Um, I want you to think about this question for a second. Thus far in your, is it a career? Uh, your time in college, have you become what you, you wanted to be thus far? Can you look back at, at, at the time that you've been here and realize what it has made you to be with a degree of satisfaction, right? Um, how would others describe you? What have you become up until this point uh, in your time here? Um, because how you answer that question says something very powerful uh, th that I'm not sure you've realized the power of yet. Because at the very source of power in your life, there is a question of identity. How you answer the question, who am I, shapes what you are. There is nothing more powerful at work in your life and in your soul than your sense of identity. In other words, who or what you you per forgive me, I speak for a living, you perceive yourself to be is the determining factor of your life. It makes you who you are. What story are you believing about yourself? Who are you? What have you become? Um, your sense of identity orders your actions. It orders your daydreams. It orders your choices. It orders your emotional life. It orders your expectations for the future. Every aspect of what you do in life is set on this question of identity. And this is the reason why the Bible goes on and on with incessant stories. Because it's hoping that in the stories we will find ourselves in them. Right? But again... Remember, this is why it's so important to see what those stories are about. It doesn't mean to find yourself in those stories by saying, hmm, what would I have done in that situation? You know, what if I were King David standing on the uh, balcony of my kingdom and looking over you know, naked women bathing uh, and lusting after them to you? What would I have done in that situation? That's not what the Bible's asking you to do. <laughs> the Bible's looking and saying, if those stories are truly about Jesus... What does it mean to find yourself in that story? 
if those stories, if King David was pointing away from himself to someone else, true transformation in life and therefore true dignity in life, as Richard Pratt in his book uh, um, uh, uh, says. In other words, true recreation as the image bearers of God, as we were intended to be, only comes when you find yourself in Jesus. That the core of your identity becomes a person. Not a list of rules. Not sort of a list of saying, here are the five doctrines that I believe that make me a Christian. Right? I assent to these. Here they are. You can look at them. But that there is an interaction, a living identification with a person. Right? Um, I think this is what Paul means when he says, for me to live is Christ. To say, it is no longer I that live. It's Christ that lives in me. Uh, in other words, he's saying, my life is about his life. And his life is about mine. Why? Because we're in union with one another. Let me, give you, let me see if I can give you an example of this. Uh, um, uh, an all too insufficient example for this. Okay, Ginger and I um, are at an age um, in our marriage. We, we just celebrated our 12th anniversary. Have I mentioned that over and over again this summer? Twelve years, a nice dozen, um, um, where we've had long enough to be with each other where creepy stuff has started happening, okay? Where we finish each other's sentences. Um, At other times, we will say something at the exact same time, in the exact same way, with the same inflection, in the same circumstance. I've tried forever to think of an example, but I can't. Unfortunately, oftentimes it's yelling at our children, uh, but never mind that. Uh, saying the same things at the same time. Uh, other things is where all of a sudden I'll say something and Ginger will look at me with eyes and she'll be like, I was just thinking that exact same thing. I've gotten to where I can anticipate how she's going to react in social situations. She's gotten to where she can totally read me in certain areas where I like either want to get out of the situation or I'm having a good time in the situation. You'll climb back in the car after parties or meetings or, or you know, preaching at certain circumstances. And she just knows. Y'all, we've begun to experience the effects of what it means to become one. So much so that the line that separates the two of us in many ways is kind of blurring in some sense. I'm not saying it's unimportant to keep your individuality in marriage and blah, blah, blah. I'm not talking about any of those sort of pathologies as people experience. I'm simply saying that the longer that you're married, the more you'll begin to see the world the way in which your spouse sees the world. We're becoming one, right? Um, Who am I since I got married? Man, I think about that all the time. I thought about so much last night, uh, you know, in in praying and thinking about, you know, Paul Stevenson. Uh, You know, Big Paul's got some struggles now. He's lost his his wife. Um, I don't know what I would do. Worse, I don't know what I would be. You know what I'm saying? It's very hard for me to explain to some of y'all how much nicer I am. It's not just nicer. More responsible. uh, Not an idiot as much. It's, It's a long list of things that weren't true before I met her. Her? Where is she? She's back in the back. Um... That's what's happened. The line that sort of distinguished the two of us has sort of, um, uh, sort of been blurred. Here's the point. Jesus would like to have the kind of intimacy with you where you finish each other's sentences, where you anticipate each other's thoughts, so that you can look and say, for me to live is Christ. 
The line that distinguishes me and him is getting blurred because I'm finding myself so much wrapped up in his life. Um, there is no other way to take what the apostles talk about in the rest of the New Testament than that kind of vivid nature. Look, y'all, I'm not asking if you've achieved that. Um, I'm just saying, can you imagine that? If not, let me see if I can introduce one last thought to you. Because for a lot of us, I feel like you look and kind of go, boy, I wish I could do that. I know that I'm supposed to be religious, and that sure sounds good. How do I achieve that, though? Um, I want to suggest to you that the key to changing your life is found here. Realizing and living in the reality of being in union with Jesus is the key to you changing the things about yourself that you can't stand right now. It's the key. Let me see if I can illustrate this using an extremely helpful um, uh, article that was written about 100 years ago by a guy named Thomas Chalmers. Chalmers was a Scottish um, pastor who wrote a wonderful essay. Uh, The man did all kinds of good things, but he wrote an essay called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. If I'm not mistaken, I think I've got it posted on our website. So if you want to look it up, you can go to RUF. Uh, the oldmiss.ruf.org uh, to read it for yourself. But there's a wonderful part in that essay where he illustrates his whole point about the title of his essay. And he talks about how it is that we begin to change. Bear with me. I've not read anything quite as exciting as this in quite some time. And when I first heard it, it completely transformed the way I thought about this. Listen to what he says. He says, look, very seldom do any of our habits and our flaws disappear by a process of extinction through reasoning or by the force of mental determination. You ever tried that? I'm going to get rid of all these flaws and habits that I have by reasoning through it. I'm going to think it out. You tried that yet? Or by the force of mental determination, willpower. I'm just going to be better. Lord, help me to be better, we pray. He says, that doesn't happen. He says, but what cannot be destroyed may be dispossessed. Listen very carefully. He says, The only way to dispossess your heart of an old affection, that is something that you love, a habit, a flaw that you can't seem to shake in your life, a sin that won't seem to get loose in your life, is by the expulsive power of a new affection, by finding something else that's even more attractive than that. So, You might have a young man, let's say, for example, who finally stops idolizing the pleasures of the flesh. But it's only because the idol of wealth has gotten the ascendancy. And then he can discipline himself for prosperous business. Notice what he says. You have a young man who suddenly gets over his struggles with lust. But you want to know why he got over his struggles with lust? It's because suddenly, after college, he sold his soul to his career and making his first million by the time he was 30, right? And suddenly he found he didn't struggle the way in which he used to. Life just sort of had new uh, allurements to him. I'm very gripped by that because a lot of times I think something that you and I call sanctification, like I really don't worry about that anymore, is simply that our phase in life has changed and we found new idols that just simply replace those others. He goes on. Even the love of money can cease to have mastery over the heart if it's drawn into the world of perhaps, say, ideology and politics. Now he's lorded over more by a love of power. <laughs> you see? Even, he, can, he can cease to be all into money if suddenly he just wants power. He just wants to be in control of other people. 
What's happened in the change in that person's life? All he's done is replace his old self with new affections. And these new affections got rid of the old habits. All right, see where he's going with this. Um, But there is not one of these identity transformations in which the heart is left without an object. You got to get that, y'all. The heart is never left without an object. Your heart is always focused on something that guides and influences your behaviors. The heart's desire for one particular object may be conquered, but its desire to have some object of absolute love is unconquerable. It's got to be something that occupies your heart. It is only when admitted into the number of God's children through faith in Jesus Christ that the spirit of adoption is poured out on us. It is then and only then that the heart brought under the mastery of one great predominant affection is delivered from the tyranny of its former desires and the only way the deliverance is possible. So it is never enough to hold out to your soul a mirror of its own perfections, or imperfections, I would add, saying, look how bad you are, O my soul. It is not enough to speak to your conscience of its follies by saying, look at your foolishness. Rather, here it is, y'all, this whole lesson, for the whole summer, you must try every possible method of finding deep access to your hearts for the love of Him who is greater than the world. Look, y'all, has Jesus in any capacity become attractive to you? That's the question. Because it's only as He becomes attractive to you that it begins to purge my life of the things that are contrary to Him. That's the question. And how many of us have tried over and over again through willpower? We've looked at this, we've wanted to change, we've wanted to purge ourselves of these things, and yet we continually feel gripped by Him. And one of the reasons is because we're trying to do them in our own strength. And Jesus is saying, look, you've got to find joy in Me, in, in the grace that I give you in the freedom that I want to give you, in the release that I want to give you from the tyranny of those other things. Find yourself in me, Jesus says. And the purging of those old affections simply happens as a matter of course, as a matter of the outworkings of having found an affection which transforms you in a way in which nothing else could.